we're back at the Dishcast. Another Friday. This time, we tried something different. We actually went out on the road to take the Dishcast to an actual audience. And we did it at the Hawthorne Barn, a legendary old barn that was once used as a famous studio for teaching art. And I chatted with Jamie Kirchick, who is the author of the now best-selling book, Secret City, which is about gay Washington, specifically gay Washington in the 20th century up to the presidency of George H.W. Bush. And the secret city, the toll that oppression, real oppression took on gay men and women, mainly gay men in this context. And we had a really wonderful conversation with some questions afterwards from the audience. Uh, And it's about the book that I reviewed last week, but it gets into so much more detail and it conjures up a whole variety of stories from the past that bring and has brought gay Washington, the Washington I've always lived in and understood, to life. Brand new facts, whole new storyline, a brilliant narrative of something that's been weirdly not covered partly because it's Washington and not New York or San Francisco. And this book is not primarily about activists, but about gay men in power and also powerless. Jamie's an old friend of mine, a brilliant writer, and I was delighted to host him, and I'm thrilled that his book has come out. So, enjoy. Thank you very much. It is... An extraordinary pleasure to bring, well, to bring, to be able to talk to my old friend, uh, Jamie Kirchick, who has been working on a book for, what is it, 35 years? <laughs> for a long time, diligently. And uh, what he's produced is a remarkable book. I think it's remarkable because it's, well, I've waited to read this book my whole adult life. It is, it is a book that is, is the first book to explain Washington as a gay city. We all, we all have this idea of San Francisco and New York uh, and L.A. in their different ways, but Washington is as gay, if not gayer, than those, and it's a very different experience. And, and those of us who've lived there and love it uh, just had nowhere to go to read the actual story of what we are seeing around us and what we knew happened in history. And secondly, it's really an important book about the history of the gay rights movement. And probably the greatest uh, misleading element of the way so many people understand it, in my opinion, is that they think it started in 1969 in New York. And that was an, a very important point in the culture. It was, I don't want to deny that importance. It was electrifying in many ways, but work had been going on a long time before that. And among the most important work was being done in Washington, which was one of the scariest cities to live in as well. Just before we start, just one uh, statistic. In the 1950s, no one gay person could work for the federal government agencies or it's those it contracted who were at risk of immediate termination. And the police state, which is the only way to describe it, was more intense than any other place, partly because no other, there was no other reason to actually hunt down gay, gay men, but they did. I think 10,000 people were fired. There's no, we don't really know the figures. It's been estimated seven to 10,000 people. Yeah. 
probably the most awful period of anti-gay persecution by the government, active persecution in history, and a police department that got gays to tell on each other that the black... Anyway, it goes on. And I'm just... Somehow that has not been a subject properly covered, and I am thrilled that it has been, and that it will add some perspective to a somewhat distorted understanding of where we come from as a movement. It's a brilliant book. It's incredibly fun to read. It's got lots of gossip, lots of stories, lots of jokes, lots of gayness actually in it, which is fantastic. Jamie, welcome and congratulations. Thank you so much, Andrew. I mean so much. Thank you. So tell us, what, what is the Washington gay type? Like we, we, we have an idea of like New York and other places and P-Town, which is very much a New York. Mm. Uh, what's the, what, how would you describe your average Washington gay? Well, it's really the best little boy in the world, which is the term that Andy Tobias uh, came up with to describe himself in, in his memoir. This is the overachieving perfectionist boy who does not, all the energies that should be going into chasing girls, like all of his peers, he's putting into extracurricular activities and schoolwork and pleasing his teachers, right? And there are positive aspects to this personality type, but there are also negative ones. And I think I made the connection that this was a Washington type when I first moved to Washington in 2007. And I realized there are a lot of gay men in this city and in their particular jobs, chiefs of staff on Capitol Hill, it's like a very gay job or like press secretary to, it just is, just lots of gay men lobbying, lobbying organizations, associations, right? The association of dental, whatever, like the, the guys, whatever the group was, there are lots of gay men in these organizations. And I think it's because the city of Washington and what it requires, the, the, the traits that are necessary for success in Washington are many traits that this, this particular type of gay man possesses or possessed. Maybe they don't possess them anymore because the closet is receding from American life. And so that best little boy in the world, I don't think he really exists that much anymore. I mean, I was one. You were one in, in your own way. A lot of us were. But I think we're going to see less of that, probably. I, 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 yeah, we'll see less of it. But I, it's, not, it's, it's absolutely we're, we're, the, the, the way in which a young kid internalizes shame about homosexuality will always, I, I mean, I'm a gloomy about this, but I think at some point, no one wants to be different when they're 12. You know, and, and some of that will, sure. some of that will create sure. those. And you can see them. I mean, certainly today, there's you no know, absence of Smithers's sort of all over Washington. Right. Smithers is, uh, <laughs> you have to explain Monty Burns is famous gay <laughs> aide. Uh, that's, that's. But it's actually, it's a cultural archetype. Mm -hmm. And you see it in film, in television, in literature, the kind of sinister homosexual advisor, you know, lurking in the background. It's something that is a kind of a recurring theme. And I don't write about this in the book. I had an essay in New York Magazine this week where I sort of trace the kind of origins of this to this scandal that occurred in 19, in the early 1900s in Wilhelmine, Germany. So pre-World War I Germany, where the emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, was accused by a journalist of being surrounded by a homosexual clique of advisors. And this is sort of the birth of kind of 20th century conspiratorial homophobia. And so this notion that it's very similar to anti-Semitism in this way, actually, and that homophobia, there's like, you know, there's the religious Judeo-Christian influenced hatred of gay people, which is kind of the predominant one. There's the sort of 
hatred of gay men in particular based on a disgust for their sexual activity. And then there's this kind of conspiratorial view that, you know, if there's like two gay men in a room, right, then there must be something going on, right? If, there, if there's two gay men in, it's, if, in, it's very similar to anti-Semitism, right? Like if there's two Jews involved in this organization where I can draw a line between, you know, this Jew and that Jew, and it's, it's very similar to that. Because I think Jews like gays are a kind of, they're a diasporic people. They're spread out throughout the world. They're accused of being not loyal to their, to their nation, but to some, the term that I come across in the book, the, the homin term, the homosexual international, which is actually, this was, this was a, a play on the common turn, the communist international. This was actually a fear in the 1950s, you know, all the way up to this scandal that I uncovered, probably the biggest scoop in the book, you know, in 1980, when Ronald Reagan was being accused of being controlled by, by a cabal of right-wing homosexual advice. It sounds crazy today, but this was actually brought to the attention of the Washington Post. And so the echoes of this scandal in the early 20th century, just the same kind of, in, di in different guises, you see it throughout the decades. But if you take out the word sinister, there is a kernel of truth yes. in this too, yes. that of course, in a city where it was for a lot of time illegal to be working for the government and be gay, yes, of course, people connected with one another quietly. Yes, of course, there was a network of people who understood each other. And yes, there was a network in which people were promoted and, and helped lots of, as you put it, one period, like these, these younger, beautiful men were suddenly getting posts here, there and everywhere. I mean, we shouldn't, I mean, it's, you detail it in the book. It's like, it was, it was, it was, that was, it, those sinister conspiracies are obviously untrue. But the idea that gays didn't know who each other were, they didn't have a separate language. They didn't uh, meet in place. I mean, and that's what scared people. And they couldn't right. tell who was a homo and who wasn't. Right. So they they figured out. You saw this in Nixon, right? Was it was it one of Nick? I'm trying to remember that one of the briefs they were given. The cops were like, "Well, you know, there are lots of people very effeminate, but you know, they go by Butch too, and you can't tell. Yeah. And there are some there are some yeah. ones that are completely indistinguishable." It was Hoover, Jager Hoover explaining that's to, right. to Richard Nixon. Some of them you can tell by the way they walk. But some of them are also very masculine. And so it's, they're, they're undetectable, so to speak. And you actually, interestingly in the book, push back a little bit at the idea that Hoover and Tolson was gay. Well, there's no, I have to be very scrupulous in this book. And there's no evidence that J. Edgar Hoover was gay. There's lots of circumstantial evidence that he was gay. I mean, he was a bachelor his entire life. He had this very doting and affectionate relationship with his number two, Clyde Tolson. They travel. They ate. They ate together at the Mayflower Hotel every day. They traveled together on vacation. You can see the photographs of them looking rather affectionately at each other. So it is this strange paradox, right? That the man sitting atop American law enforcement, who's responsible for this purge of gay people, might have been gay himself. And we certainly know that he was incredibly sensitive to the rumors and allegations. And I think some of the wildest anecdotes in the book are about the lengths to which the FBI would go to just quash rumors about J. Edgar Hoover being gay. And there's one vignette I tell where it's a group of, this is 1943, it's a group of women playing bridge in some small town in Ohio. And apropos of whatever, maybe reading about him in the newspaper, one of the ladies says while they're playing cards, you know, that J. Edgar Hoover, he's a homosexual, he's a queer. Queer is the word she Queer, he's a queer. <laughs> Turns out one of the other women in the bridge club, her nephew is in the bureau, works for the FBI. She mentions it to her nephew. The nephew tells his boss. It goes all the way up to FBI headquarters 
in Washington, D.C. The next day, the woman who uttered this at the bridge party is called into the FBI field office in Chicago or St. Louis, whatever the nearest city was. And she's given a stern talking to by the special agent in charge. What are you doing spreading? This is in the middle of World War II, right? What are you doing? We're in the middle of a, of a global war and the director has responsibility for the safety of this country and you're spreading. Where did you hear this? And she tells him, well, I was visiting Washington. We were at a, and she goes into all this detail about where she heard the rumor that the director was a queer. And he, the agent, instructs her, you go and you tell your friends in this bridge club that what you said was false. And she, in the next week at the bridge club, she tells them, you know, it was, and there's multiple examples of this, of private citizens just having what they believe are conversations, right? In a cafe, to a friend, in a diner, it gets overheard by someone, they report it to the bureau and it's quashed. And then, but then it's funny as the book develops in the sixties and seventies, I, I came across these stories of people going through, um, background security check because they needed to get a job in the in the government. And the FBI was the ones who would conduct these investigations. And there's actually a moment when Henry Kissinger is, is going to become national security advisor. And the FBI agents are interviewing one of his former graduate students. And because Henry Kissinger was a bachelor at this time, they started asking questions that were sort of suggestive. Well, you know, is he a homosexual? And the man, the, the graduate student, says to the agents, well, I don't know, but your boss might know, right? So by that point of the late 60s and early 70s, people would joke to the FBI agents about Hoover being a homosexual. And by that point, the impression that I got was that these agents had heard this so much, right, that people would just make jokes about it. That it but by that point, they just kind of waved it off and, and didn't. Well, he, 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 it is true that he cross-dressed. <laughs> no, absolutely no, not. No, there's no, that really story, didn't. that story comes from, okay. That's everybody, anybody else. Here everyone believes that. Jack everyone Hillary. believes that. In fact, that's one of the most common. When I would tell people, I was writing a book about gay Washington. There were a few things I would, you know, get asked. One was always, well, Lindsey Graham's going to be in that book, right? <laughs> but then the other one was J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover is a, is a crossdresser, right? And it's the most, one of the most commonly believed things about him, largely, I think, because of, the film, J. Edgar, the Clint Eastwood movie, where he, Leonardo DiCaprio is actually putting on his mother's clothing in, in, a, in a mirror and sort of crying about it, whatever. The, the origins of this, the origins of this myth, and it is a myth because yeah. there's no evidence for it. The origins of this myth come from a biography that was written by a British journalist, so you should immediately be <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> where the biographer paid, he paid, as British journalists often do, he paid for an interview with the widow of a mob boss who Hoover had some dealings with. And she claimed that she was at a party. Okay, why, why a woman would be invited to one of these parties is besides the point. But she was invited, she claimed to have been at a party at the Plaza Hotel in New York City where J. Edgar Hoover was in a dress with Roy Cohn and they were committing depraved sexual acts with young boys. That's what, that's the story, okay? It's Pizzagate, And right? it, it's basically Pizzagate. But when this book came out, it became such a joke. Like Bill Clinton made a joke about it at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It just became, and it just, by the time that I was like old enough to be politically conscious, we all just sort of believed that J. Edgar Hoover was a crossdresser, but there's no evidence for it. In 1948, the entire country and the elections was focused around the issue of homosexuality. 52. 52 sorry, 52. It was a huge issue in 1952. But in 48, who? 48 was the Kinsey Report. Right. 
And this is a huge moment. It's that John Cheever says That's 1948 was the year everyone was worried about homosexuality, which was something new to me when I was reading, when I was researching this book. And literally all within a month, this is what happens. The, the Kinsey Report comes out January 5th. And the Kinsey Report says that, you know, 10% of American men between the ages of 18 and 65 are for three years within that period were exclusively homosexual, right? So that famous figure, 10%, comes from the Kinsey Report. And this is a total shock to the country because prior to that, the belief was that gay people were homosexuals because we have to use the terms that were... I'm not, I, in the book, I'm very explicit about using language that is appropriate to the times in which I'm writing, right? So the word queer only appears in this book. This has apparently offended some reviewers, but the word only appears in my book when it's used as a slur, because that was the term that was used at the time, uh, was queer. But so the notion that most people in America, first of all, they never talked about homosexuality. In fact, one of the other insights I think I discovered in this book was all the euphemisms that were used to describe homosexuality. Even that term, which is a neutral term, was considered, it was just not, you would not speak this word. It was, it was considered bad manners to even utter the word homosexual. So there are all these other ways of speaking about it. And so in 1948, for this report to come out saying that 10% of the male population is homosexual, I mean, that could be the milkman. It could be the teacher. It could be, you know, high-ranking State Department official, as we'll later learn later in that year when a major scandal comes out. A few weeks after that, the Kinsey report is published, Gore Vidal publishes The City and the Pillar, which is, he's 23 at the time. And this is the first major work of American fiction to deal with homosexuality from a sympathetic perspective. And it's a scandalous book. And Vidal would always claim that he was essentially sort of blacklisted by the New York Times, right, because of this book. It was so, it so scandalized the literary world. And then that same month, Truman Capote publishes Other Voices, Other Rooms. So you have all this happening in, in early 1948, and it causes basically a sex panic and this notion that homosexuals are everywhere. And then what, a homos, what, what, what else is going on in America at this time? What's the other group of people who are duplicitous and living in the shadows, and you can't tell what they are just by looking at them? Communists, right? And so this, this association begins to form culturally, politically. Later that year, I, just, I had alluded to it, but... Whitaker Chambers, who is a, f a very famous journalist, he's a senior editor at Time magazine, he comes forth, he comes out, so to speak, and says that he had been a communist in the 1930s, and that with him, working with him as a communist, was a man named Alger Hiss, who was a former high-ranking State Department official and the head of the Carnegie Endowment, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. What Chambers doesn't reveal is that he had also been a gay man. He had lived a gay life in the 1930s cruising for sex in New York and in Washington and public parks. Um, and he's forced to basically confess this privately to the FBI because the Hiss side, Alger Hiss and his allies, are starting a whisper campaign. And Whitaker Chambers is a liar. And what this is really all about is that he's a spurned and vindictive homosexual, that he wanted Alger Hiss and Hiss rejected him. And then all these charges of a communist conspiracy are the words of a, as Alger Hiss would later say, fairy vengeance, right? Now, as we know from the archives have been opened, Alger Hiss was indeed a spy. Whitaker Chambers was telling the truth. Whitaker Chambers was also gay. I mean, it's hard how he would describe, he goes off and married and had children. But among, among influential people in Washington, it was never explicitly 
This was never explicitly raised during the trial. It was too dangerous a subject. Even for Hiss's side, they, they determined for various reasons that if they were to explicitly make the case that Chambers was gay, then people might start asking questions. Well, maybe that does mean Hiss was also gay, because why else would Chambers and Hiss know each other? Did they meet each other in the homosexual underground and not the, not the communist underground? So it was, it was deemed too dangerous for the Hiss defense team to use it. But we see that develops within this sort of cultural political sphere, this association of communists and homosexuals, that they're one and the same. And it's funny, when my, my first arrival in New York City as a, as a, as a non-citizen, I, I, on the forum, coming in, I had to swear that I was not a communist <laughs> or a homosexual. As late as the nine, 1980s. Nine, late, yeah, 1980s, which wasn't taken off the immigration form for visas until I, the early 90s. Barney did it, as I recall. Um, Most people don't know that. It's hard to say, between Chambers and Hiss, this thing... Absolutely obsessed people for a very it's long time. It's the first time. televised congressional hearing in America. And this, and tell us about the 52 campaign. That's what I, right. Because then suddenly it begins to happen well, we, that some of these people connected with presidents are also right. homosexuals. And then yeah. you have this panic about. So we can't, we have to, 1950 is another, so February 1950, I just said January 1948 was a very important month in the history of homosexuality. February 1950 is also really important. What happens? February 9th, Joe McCarthy gives his famous speech to the ladies of uh, the Republican ladies of Wheeling, West Virginia, where he's got his list of 205 communists in the State Department, right? And that sets off uh, a panic. Later that month, Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, is called up to testify on Capitol Hill, along with a deputy of his. And just in passing, when they're, they're basically answering these charges that McCarthy has made, and in passing, they're talking about people who've been separated from the State Department for various reasons, right? And, and he says that 91 homosexuals have been fired from the State Department since 1947. This comes as a huge shock, almost more shocking than, it actually is more shocking because there weren't 205 communists in the State Department. That was a lie. And that, that number, by the way, changed every day when McCarthy was asked about it. Some, some, some days would be 205, other days would be 78, whatever. But 91 homosexuals, absolutely, they were in the State Department, and they were kicked out. And in fact, there's one little anecdote, sort of st statistic, but of the thousands of letters that Joe McCarthy got from people all across the country writing into him in the aftermath of these revelations, only 25% of the letters were about communists in the State Department. The rest of them were all about perverts or sexual deviants, right? So within the public imagination, this is a real fear. And, and, then and it's also true that the State Department was full of homosexuals. Yeah, so... The State Department was, you could say, relatively a more tolerant place for gay people just in the... I mean, if you think about it, what, what sort of job allows you as a bachelor to kind of get away with being a bachelor, right? You can join... You're in the Foreign Service. You have to travel long overseas tours. It can... It, it, so it sort of provided us a relatively... It was not... You know, it wasn't P-Town, okay? But it was a relatively... You could, you could sort of get away, okay? Because it was also it was also for upper-class... You had to be very wealthy to be in the State Department in this era. It was all kind of upper-class wasps. But, but that 1950s when the Lavender Scare begins, right? Those revelations come out. The Lavender Scare begins. There's a government, a, a, a Senate subcommittee launches an investigation. They, they come out with a report calling for the purge of gay people from federal government jobs. The State Department becomes associated in the public mind with homosexuality. And in fact, there's a New Yorker cartoon from 1950 that 
I don't reproduce in the book, but you can find it online where it just, it's just, you know, typical New Yorker cartoon. It shows a man applying for a job and he says, yes, tr yes, sir. It's true. I was fired from the state department, but it was only for incompetence, right? Cause that's how, and this is the New Yorker. Okay. This is the most elite, prestigious, liberal publication in the country, right? Every, every right thinking Bien Penzant liberal person is reading this magazine. This is how they refer to the State Department, and obviously their readers are well acquainted enough that the joke didn't need to be explained. Like, we all get, yes, State Department means queer. That's what it means. So in 1952, the Eisenhower, the Republicans are running, and, and one of the major issues, I mean, the, the campaign slogan is to clean up Washington. And that's mostly a reference to the corruption of the Truman administration, but it also is very much a reference to the moral depravity in the State Department. And uh, the term lavender lads gets int introduced into the, into the uh, discourse. Uh, the lavender lads at the State Department, J. Edgar Hoover, is spreading rumors that Adlai Stevenson is a queer. Adlai Stevenson, who is three deadly things. He is a bachelor at the time. He's divorced. He is a former diplomat and he's an intellectual, right? So these three things make this rumor really testy. And it becomes really, you could say, the first campaign, presidential campaign or election in which gay people become an issue. Not the last. Who was the uh, most powerful gay man in the, in the 20th century in Washington? Oh, wow. Um, well, excluding J. Edgar Hoover. If we, if he, we don't know. If, so he, if not, he were. If he, he was, would, he would have absolutely, he, it would be him. Oh, that's a good question. Roy Cohn? I don't know how much of a Washington figure he is. He's certainly in the book. There's an entire chapter on the Army McCarthy hearings. I mean, we can get into him, but he kind of doesn't, he kind of leaves Washington after that. Yeah, but he's, he's more of a New York, but he is certainly a power broker. He, Absolutely. Came, he came back like a bad meal with his with, client, Trump. Well, yes. That, that style of he, politics. Yeah. yeah. That's a good question. I'll have to actually think about that. I should probably know that question because it seems like an obvious one that I'm going to be asked on this book tour. Um, but I'll, I will. I'll have to dwell on that before well, I give it. Let's go each let's get like each president and and tell me right. the, the gay man closest to them that was FDR. FDR. So yeah, his his basically his de facto Secretary of State was a man named Sumner Wells, who was the undersecretary of state, but he was an old fam Roosevelt family friend, third in his class at Harvard, rose very quickly up the State Department ranks, was ambassador to Cuba at age 28 or something. And he basically, he becomes undersecretary of state. The secretary of state is a man named Cordell Hall, who's a Southern Democrat who FDR does not like, but he needs him because he needs to appease the Southern wing of his party, right? But Hall is this old man who's, get, he's tubercular, he has like tuberculosis. And he's, he's often sick and can't fulfill his duties. And so Wells is the man that basically runs the State Department. And because of this, Hall is very resentful as is another man named William Bullitt, who I think is actually one of the most fascinating characters in the book. William, William Bullitt was the first ambassador to the Soviet Union. He was ambassador to France. He was this bon vivant. He was a playwright. He was married to Louise um, Bryant, a local, right? Louise Bryant was John was married to John Reed, the, uh, the great communist journalist who wrote 10 Days That Shook the World. She was his widow. William Bullitt had married her. She goes off and has a lesbian relationship. This really angers William Bullis. Bullet goes on. I mean, I could go whole on, but Bullet Bullet co-authors a psychobiography with William Freud. Sorry, with Sigmund Freud of Woodrow Wilson. 
in which they accuse, in which they basically blame the, they, be, they basically blame the uh, failure of the Versailles Treaty on Wilson's latent homosexuality. That's basically the thesis of this book. They each have their own reasons for hating Wilson. Bullet because Bullet worked for Wilson and testified against the Versailles Treaty uh, and it basically destroyed his diplomatic career. Freud because he lamented the, the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire after World War I, which he blamed Wilson for. The two of them hated Wilson. They write this book. It's not published until the 1960s, long after Freud dies. But they basically accuse, yeah. And it just shows you how homosexuality is this, it's always associated with the worst things. So I, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but you know, when fascism, when Americans were fighting fascism, I came across all these government documents that there, there are serious inquiries into whether or not the Nazis are a gay, if it's, if it's a gay phenomenon, if Nazism is a gay phenomenon. And there's actually this proposal that comes to the OSS, which is the predecessor to the CIA, where they're, where they're thinking of, should we recruit patriotic homosexual men to infiltrate the Nazi high command? Because they're all a bunch of queers. Well, gay men can't serve in the military. They can't serve in, in this is World War II, they can't serve in the military, but maybe we could use them to infiltrate and spy on the Nazis, right? And then when communism is our threat, we associate communism with homosexuals. Pedophilia is associated with homosexuals. The worst things are repeatedly associated with gay people, with gay men, and really gay men in particular. And it's just a recurring theme in the book, and you'll see it. It's just whatever is bad or whatever is mysterious, whatever, whatever we can, the Kennedy assassination. I mean, I have a whole chapter. Has anyone here seen the movie JFK? Do you remember the, the plot of the movie is basically, it's the most homophobic movie ever made. Go back and watch it. The plot of this movie, which is based on a real prosecution, by the way, Jim Garrison, who was the New Orleans district attorney, basically accused, he alleged that there was a right-wing homosexual cabal that killed Kennedy as part of a homosexual thrill killing. That was his term. This is the basis of JFK, which was nominated for five Academy Awards. Sorry, I, I got off on a tangent there, but you're talking about the most... Because <coughs> the closest, uh, so we went, we had... It would be Wells for, Wells FDR. for FDR. Truman, I couldn't come across anyone now, Wells close is, to him. Wells is yeah. basically Secretary of State. He's basically Secretary of State. FDR, that's a bloody FDR, powerful position. Very he writes the Atlantic Charter. Right. He's responsible for the Wells Declaration, which is a very important diplomatic concept, which pledged that the United States would not recognize the annexation of the Baltic states, the three little Baltic states, which had been annexed by the Soviet Union. There was a lot of pressure to just recognize it. The United States said, no, we're not going to recognize it. And it's a very important diplomatic concept because today, when the Russians have annexed other territory, Crimea, we don't recognize that annexation of Crimea. There's been a lot of pressure to do so, but we don't. And that all goes back to Sumner Wells. Truman. Truman, I couldn't come across any gay men close to him. Yeah. Eisenhower... Basically, the man responsible, most responsible for getting him elected is a man named Arthur Vandenberg Jr., who's the son of Arthur Vandenberg, who was the great Republican internationalist senator who basically went from being an isolationist to being an, when for Pearl Harbor happens, he becomes an internationalist and he works with FDR, and he works with Truman to basically create the post-war world, right? It's his son, Arthur Jr., what was the head of the Citizens for Eisenhower committee, right, which was the, the, the committee to draft Ike to run as a Republican for president in 1952. He's very close to Ike. He's preparing to go in to be his appointments secretary, which sounds like just the guy who's keeping the calendar. It's actually a very important job. He's basically, you know, like the number three. 
And then J. Edgar Hoover, this recurring figure, he's happens a lot. He, you'll see him a lot in the book. In December 1952, he visits Ike at the Commodore Hotel, which is his campaign, his transition headquarters in New York City. And he comes with information that Arthur Vandenberg is a homosexual and gives it to Ike. And there's not even, it's like a split. He ba he vaguely threatens Ike in a way. It's interesting, not threatens, but he says, basically says to him, look, um, if Arthur Vandenberg doesn't go into the administration, we won't pursue this anymore, right? So it's basically, you see this often with presidents. Hoover comes in with some secret, you know, the title of my book, Secret City. He has some secret information and he basically fires an arrow across the bow. And that's all he needs to say because it's, 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 a, it's a kind of almost mafia-like, you know, nice, nice presidential uh, advisor you have there. You know, it would be really painful. It would, it would be bad if anything happened to him, right? And then like that, he's gone. He's gone. They kind of massage it in the press. They say, you know, he's has, having medical issues. He's checked himself into a hospital. And, you know, four months into the Eisenhower administration, it's announced that Art Jr. won't be taking the job. It's a tr tragic story. He goes off to teach um, at a university and then out of the blue in 1956, right? So like th three years after he's essentially fired, Confidential Magazine, which was one of the most popular magazines in America, basically the forerunner to the supermarket tabloid. And it really pioneers the practice of outing in American culture. They out him uh, and they publish photographs of his home uh, and they tell the story of when he was a soldier and how he was supposedly, you know, the swish in the unit. That was another term that was used for gay people, swish. Swast swastika swishery was was a term that, 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 what's his name, the famous radio. Coughlin. No, 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 the other, Walter Witchell. He came up with that term, swastika swishery, again, to describe this association between Nazis and gay people. Okay, we're so gonna, confidential gonna keep outing, going. Confidential outing. Oh. Okay, so then then JFK. So JFK is is sort of interesting in this perspective because his best friend is gay. And the chapter, the first chapter on JFK is called First Friends because he's really the first president to sort of be comfortable around gay men in a way that no other president had been. So his best friend, Lem Billings from Choate, is gay. He knows this because Lem once propositioned him when they were at school. And I think unlike most men of that era, JFK was actually pretty, Kennedy was pretty relaxed about it. They they remain best friends for the rest of their lives. Kennedy's also friends with Gore Vidal through marriage because Jackie's related to him. Truman Capote. Joe Alsop, who was, it's hard to... Joe Alsop was an incredibly yeah. important journalist. Yeah. He dominated... This he, back in the era when newspaper columnists were really, really influential. People blamed him for the Vietnam yeah, War. Yes, right. Uh, so Joe Alsop is, again, like many of the characters in this book, kind of wasp, you know, sort of wasp hierarchy. He's related to the Roosevelts, and he's gay. And there's a great story about him in 1957. He's he's a militant anti-communist. He's visiting Moscow on a reporting trip. He in interviews Khrushchev, okay? It's a very important trip. And then one evening, he is seduced by the a KGB officer, undercover, right? And photographs are taken of him in his Moscow hotel room, compromising photographs with this young man. The next day... Uh, actually, sorry, it's immediately, yeah, the, the next day the young man invites him again for another assignation. He goes, and what happened? Who, bar who busts into the door? These KGB guys, they throw down the photos. And what's interesting is that Alsop, well, they, and they try to blackmail him, right? They try to 
coerce him into being a source for them back in Washington. And what's fascinating is Alsop does exactly what J. Edgar Hoover and the other leaders of the American national security state would want a gay man to do in this situation. He writes down a full confession of everything that happened. He calls it an act of very great folly, his, his falling for this man, right? And being led into this honey trap is the term, the espionage term. He writes out a full confession. He says that I've been an incurable homosexual since youth. And I figured that as long as I didn't hurt anyone, that it would not be a problem. I visited multiple doctors about this. I mean, he just, he writes it all out and he gives it to the CIA. His friends, of course, in the CIA, because they're all, all these guys are part of the Georgetown set. That's the name of a book about this very powerful clique of influential journalists and power players in Washington in this era. And he, he writes it all down and it gets into J. Edgar Hoover's hands, right? But it has no, it has no impact on federal government policy. They're still purging gay people left and right. So the fact that this man who's in this exact situation that you claim is happening all the time, and by the way, not once is there a recorded instance of a gay person turning over sensitive information to a foreign power because they're blackmailed, okay? So this entire pretext that sort of seems like it might make sense on the face of it, right? You might think, even if you're a, a liberal person, you might think, yes, this is a terrible secret in the time of 1950s. And yeah, maybe we shouldn't let gay people serve because they might, they might you know, be vulnerable to blackmail. There's actually not a single example of it ever happening. Is that he, he could then be blackmailed by the Soviets and his own government at any moment. Yes. And yet he didn't budge an inch in his writing. He didn't change yeah. any positions and he carried on writing. And then which is which yeah. is just, I mean, as a writer under that yes. kind of threat, that is integrity. Whatever I mean, you think whatever, of his views. Yes. His views on Vietnam were, I mean, he was a dead ender on Vietnam. But and then what happens in the early 70s? In the early 70s, unmarked manila envelopes start arriving in people's mailboxes across Washington with these photographs taken in 1957. And they are sent to about a dozen people, including his worst enemy, Art Buchwald, who was a, who was a humor columnist. Art Buchwald had actually written a play making fun of Joe Alsop. He wrote an entire play mocking Joe Alsop. They gave, so they gave the photos to him and Art Buchwald did not do anything with them. Whereas can you imagine today, if this sort of thing happened, I mean, it'd be up on Twitter in two minutes, but there was this sort of among a certain class, right? Among a certain class of people in Washington in that era, there was kind of a gentleman's agreement, right? And Joe Alsop was unique. I'm not pointing to him as being in any way representative of people in Washington. Most people in Washington would not have this sort of protection, but because he was part of this class of people, even his worst enemy, Art Buchwald, didn't do anything with that photograph, put it right in the trash. Yeah. And we mustn't forget the organizer of the March on Washington, mm -hmm. Biodrustin, the great Biodrustin. He was really one of the extraordinary person. One of the real moral titans of the 20th century, who we, who we don't know enough about. We don't teach him enough in our schools. I mean, he really is up there with Martin Luther King. And, and then going forward, because I, I want get, to get us up yeah. to snuff, Nixon. Now, Nixon, Nixon's relationship with homosexuality is, to my mind, is fascinating, because he was the Who's the only president really obsessed with it? My, one of my favorite quotes in the book is because you have the, the tapes in the White House and, uh, and Nixon goes, well, it's, whenever you let that stuff run wild, it's the end of the country. I mean, look at the Greeks. Isn't that so, Henry? And, and Henry just says, 
well. <laughs> it's not, it's not well. <laughs> because it's like, okay, how am I going to get through this one? Uh, surrounded by, yeah. So, well, his closest, his chief speechwriter was a gay man. Ray Price. The person who came up with the silent majority. Yes. Well, there's an interesting story. He came up with quiet majority. Okay. Which Nixon actually used that term quiet majority during the campaign. And then after he's elected, after 1968 and the riots at the Chicago convention, it's Pat Buchanan who edits it and says it's silent majority, right? So they're not quiet anymore. They're silent. And it's this interesting dynamic between Ray Price, who's what used to be called a liberal liberal Republican that used to exist. Okay? He was an editorial writer for the New York Herald Tribune, one of the great liberal Republican newspapers of the time. And he was sort of, you know, he was the he was the angel on Nixon's shoulder, right? And then there's, and he was, you know, he went to Yale, he was in Skull and Bones. And then there's Pat Buchanan, who is the populist Catholic firebrand devil on Nixon's shoulder. And the two of them are sort of competing for Nixon's, you know, attention here. But yeah, Ray Price, I mean, there's only two people I out. Ray Price is one of them. And my views on outing are similar to yours. I have a very high bar for people who are alive. If they're, if they're dead. If they're dead, they belong to history, is my is my view on this. And I know even there was this there was this remarkable piece in the Times a couple of weeks ago about Ed Koch, where they posthumously outed him. And there, there are many people, often straight people, who are like, oh, this is not, this is not right. This is, why are you doing this? Why does the sex life matter? And my view is, is if, the man who represented literally the air, the, the, the block where gay liberation began, right? He represented Greenwich Village. He represented the, the district where the Stonewall Inn is located. If this man, who represented probably the most pro-gay friendly districts in the country, if he felt the need that he could not be out of the closet, even after, long after his political career, so there's no political consequences, if that man, if, if the closet was so destructive and so constricting that that man felt the need to be within it his entire life. We need to know that as a country and as a society. Right. People need to know that, I think. Right? Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. I still have another one. Cardinal Spellman. Hugely Cardinal powerful. Cardinal Spellman, yes. Uh, gay You're a Catholic. I'll let you talk about it. No, that. I'm not going to talk about it. But I'm just saying, I'm just, th- just through. What is, what is remarkable is that what Jamie has done is tell history. This is just history with gay people at its center, uh, not hidden away, but actually, and it's and it's and it's happening in the center of power. Right. But you talk about that climate of, and I'm, we'll we'll finish with this because it's important. There is a hero here. There is someone who just decided at some point in ways that no one else had done and very few people would do for a while and say, you're not firing me because I'm gay. That's not a good reason. I'm going to sue you. Tell us about Frank Kameny. Frank Kameny was a Harvard-trained astronomer who in 1957, he was working for the Army Map Service, which is basically the, it's the predecessor to the Geospatial Intelligence Agency today. And this is, you know, Sputnik. It's the height of the Cold War. We need really smart Harvard-trained astronomers working for us, right? He is fired for being gay, and he is the first person to challenge this and sue the federal government. And I actually had an insight the other day. I'm trying to think, what would that be like? Because there's no openly gay, this notion of an openly gay person, that does not exist, (laughs) okay? And what is it like? You know what it's like? And it's actually, it's a very appropriate analogy because Frank was an astronomer. It's sort of like Galileo saying the earth is round and it revolves around the sun. And everyone in society is telling him you're a crazy and they and they they oppress him, right? They put him in jail. 
and he refuses to admit. He refuses to say the earth is flat. I think that's, to be a he, gay person in 1957 and say, no, you know what? Homosexuality is a morally neutral trait and I'm not sick. You're sick. The society is sick. It's like Galileo. It really is that transformative, I he, think. He, 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 he's had one phrase, gay is, is good. good. Yeah. It wasn't neutral. It was yeah, good. Right. Uh, it was like a black, like the, the black is uh, beautiful. Black is beautiful, but gay is good. Now he, he, he just came out of it. Now I have a, we have a, I have, we talked about this and we both knew Frank yeah. and an amazing figure, but he was definitely on the spectrum. And this may also be a moment when uh, somebody neurodivergent and through that ability to just not see or care about the social reaction, was confronted with a piece of injustice and simply said, without any of the normal terror and panic, and said, this is wrong. And then actually went ahead. He didn't just, I mean, this is the, he wrote letters to everyone. everyone. He, 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 he organized the first Mattachine Society. And in the first Washington. meeting was the, was, was, the, was the informer that they all knew was the informer, right? right? It shows you kind of how... <laughs> inept and kind of keystone cops the police often are in, in, in my book. So the first meeting of the Mattachine Society is in room 120 of the Hay Adams Hotel, which, by the way, I think that that meeting should stand with Stonewall. It should be in the, like, we I should think know. it should be before Stonewall. Yeah. It's the, but we it, should know that, 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 that the, the, the meeting of the Mattachine Society at the Hay Adams Hotel in August 1961 should, should be as associated in the public mind, right, with gay history as the Stonewall uprising. It's not because it's not as sexy as, you know, throwing bricks at cops. And I'm not trying, and I'm not minimizing what happened at Stonewall, but it's like, you know, it's 12 white men in suits and ties. And we know what happened at this meeting because not only was the FBI surveilling it, they got the manager of the hotel to basically spy on this meeting, who, by the way, reported that the, the men were very well behaved. They only ordered coffee and the only words that he could overhear were like bylaws and resolutions. <laughs> but then also inside the meeting, inside the meeting is a plain closed undercover police officer from the Metropolitan Police Department, the local police in Washington, D.C., who happened to be the same man who <laughs> that they would use in vice squad stings, you know, luring gay and trapping gay men in public bathrooms and parks. So he was quite familiar to the men in this room. Not the best idea when you're trying to think of someone to send undercover into a meeting of homosexuals. You send the guy who's like, who's like arrested half of them, you know, over the past couple, who's very handsome, obviously, right? Because you have to pick the most handsome guy in the force. So Frank, yeah, I mean, Frank's an incredible character and suffered and paid for it. I mean, I don't know if you ever visited Frank at his house in Washington. It, it, he lived in a decrepit, partly because he was a pack rat and again, perhaps autistic, right? But this man sacrificed, I mean, he was living on 25 cents a day for years because he could not get a job because you, you have to keep in mind federal contractors as well, right? So here's a guy with a Harvard PhD who in that era during the Cold War, all these companies that, you know, are dealing with technology, they're all contracting with the federal government in some way. So he can't get employed. He's living on 25 cents a day. He said, he told me when I interviewed him that Oftentimes, having a pat of butter on his mashed potatoes was a luxury. He'd be consider himself lucky if he could for if he could afford the five cents for a pat of butter on his mashed potatoes. And it's a Harvard PhD. A Harvard PhD, right? And how many other people like that suffered that we don't know about? But and I feel like our gay, you know, I, I felt it was a shame. Yeah, it was it was just a shame what he went through, and he was remarkably not bitter about it. 
and he, and, he, and he put it to good use. And I actually, one of the inspirations for writing this book was I went to the ceremony in 2009, early in the Obama administration, where OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, which is the successor organization to the Civil Service Commission, which was the, organ, which was the bureaucracy that was responsible for purging gay people across the civil service, they apologized to Frank. And it was a ceremony with Michelle Obama, the first lady, and the head of OPM, who was an openly gay man. So it had this kind of poetic justice to it. But they, they, the federal government officially apologized to Frank Kamen in 2009, and he, and he accepted it. And it was In, in yeah. my view, next year, June, they should have a stamp, yeah. poster stamp with Absolutely. a stamp's face on it. Absolutely. It is a scandal to me. I mean, I joke up about it because, <laughs> you know, they, that's courage of an incredible kind. And we owe so much to that. Because even though it wasn't, it, it was the consciousness shift. Yeah. Someone publicly to say, I'm okay, gay is good. He, he was incredibly important in getting rid of the 1973 APA judgment of homosexuality as a, a mental illness. He, he led the first picket outside the White House, where he insisted with these beautiful, very well done posters, everyone wearing suits and ties, they had to, he wanted all the... Three lesbians. If you want to be employed, look employable. That's what that he was said. His, that was yeah. his statement. And uh, he wanted the lesbians to wear high heels, actually. But he got, they talked him out of that. There was some definite... <laughs> there were definite, a lot of lesbian gay male tensions. There was. because yeah. Partly because, you know, so much of this oppression is actually not as great for lesbians. I mean, it's actually concentrated on men because of their sexual behavior. That's, they're the people being thrown in jail. I mean, 100%. They also, have, they also are in jobs that require security clearances, so they were subject to a greater scrutiny. But when you're a lesbian and, you're, and every agenda is about yeah, public cruising, sex arrests. And lesbians are like, why are we here? Why are we, what, what, yeah. what, what are we doing in these meetings where all, all we talk about are you guys going off and getting arrested for sex in public bathrooms? So there was a lot of tension in the early gay rights movement. A very good lesbian gay. question. <laughs> uh, uh, so there's a great hope, and there's, there's a wonderful storyline in the book, and I think you rightly don't take us into the 21st century, that it would be inappropriate, I think, to really be able yet to understand that history. Jamie, thank you. I, I want to hand over to questions now so that you guys want to going to ask you, because this is also going to be a podcast, is that I will repeat your question after you ask it, if that's okay, so that everyone can hear. Who would like to ask him a question? Yeah. Oh, yes. Who's man, the other yeah. person? Does, the question is who does... Yeah, a man named Peter Hannaford, who with Michael Deaver, who would be Ronald Reagan's chief of staff, Peter Hannaford was really one of the most important advisors to Ronald Reagan. And Michael Deaver and Peter Hannaford had a consulting firm that basically between the time Ronald Reagan left the governorship of California and ran for president in 1980, so from 1973 to 19, sorry, 1975 to 1980, they basically managed Ronald Reagan's public image, right? So like the public image of Ronald Reagan was designed and thought and, and it, was, it was basically run by a, a closeted gay man. And the reason I out him in the book is because in 1980, he is accused of being part of this ring of homosexual advisors that in a malign way are sort of controlling Ronald Reagan as if he were a Manchurian candidate. That's actually the term that this group of oddly, well, not oddly, moderate to liberal Republicans are the ones who 
are bringing these accusations to the Washington Post because they don't want the conservative movement to take over their party, right? There's still a fight going on between moderates and conservatives. Reagan had ran against Gerald Ford, the incumbent Republican president from the right in 1976. And so this, again, this shows you that homophobia was a political weapon that anyone could use. This was not a liberal cause at this point. This was something that liberals were perfectly willing to use. In fact, the first outing in America is by FDR's allies, his against a conservative isolationist Democrat in 1942. There's a chapter on that in the book. And so Peter Hannaford is at the center of this scandal or this purported scandal. He's at the center of this ring that's controlling Ronald Reagan. And he may or may not have been denied a job in the Reagan administration because of his homosexuality. I don't know for sure. Ed Meese, who would go on to be attorney general and was the campaign manager, he was presented with this information and I interviewed him about it and he was very cagey and did not and deny that Peter Hannaford was gay, which is not, I mean, he doesn't know what he's talking or he's lying on his behalf. And I think, again, I think that, that this is worth knowing. Like is, it, it should be, it's worth knowing that one of Ronald Reagan's top advisors was a closeted gay man and who may have been denied a job in the White House because he was gay. I think that that's, that, that belongs on the historical record. What stands out to me is that it was a, a gay man that shaped this incredibly important Reagan image that yes. really the most potent weapon he had, just as a gay man came up with the quiet majority for Nixon, which right. was probably the most important theme and thematic of his It's a theme of his of the gay man is like political image makers on the right and the left. And you see that there's um, Marvin, also, Marvin Liebman, who is the right-wing right. conservative. I mean, this is the guy who basically helps create the conservative movement with Bill Buckley. Yeah, He creates letterhead organizations, which is these terms. It's, it's, it's a term for an organization where, you know, you see the letterhead and it has all these fancy schmancy people along the side. This was a kind of novel concept in the 1950s when the conservative movement was starting, where you would just get a lot of prominent people to say they agree with whatever cause it is. With Liebman, the first one, it was to block UN recognition of communist, Red China, right? So that was the first letterhead organization. They got all these prominent people from various sectors of life and culture and society. This was Marvin Liebman's also, intuition. And the Manichean Society uh, formally expelled communists and denounced yes. communism from the get-go. The, the one thing you see in the book is that this is not about Democrat, Republican, right and left. Everyone is there. It's just as, yeah. it's, it's, it's. The thing about gays is that we are randomly distributed, which means there's going to be as many from red states as blue states. And and Washington represents everyone. And so it's an incredibly vibrant place. And the hatred is also coming from right and left. I mean, Bobby Kennedy called Bayard Rustin that old black fairy yeah. who's running that anti-Kennedy march. And they also... It's the, important to remember yeah. that's yeah. what they were saying. And he and his brother also would joke about who was the clever one that came up with to, to, to describe James Baldwin as Martin Luther Queen. Right. They would joke about that. Yeah. According to Gorbachev. It's funny. Another question? Let me, let me mention, because we haven't, Washington is a segregated city for much yes, of yes. this time. Black gay Washington is, remains an amazing fact of life in the city. And there are two, two things that first that came to mind. There was a, there's a, in the 40s, I think, there's a police report that 1,700 Negro men 
had rented a cruise party and were all dressed in drag. In drag. <laughs> and 1,700 people were arrested. 100 police officers had to kind of take it down. That, that's, the other thing you, you realize is that we have this, I think, a terribly condescending attitude that everyone in the past was so fucked up and ashamed and didn't do anything and had no agency, but they did. Probably the, the, the one of the most amazing characters in the book is a woman called Odessa Madre, this big black lesbian. And I mean, it, absolutely, in every single respect, who, well, you, you, you tell the story. She's basically, but, there's a reviewer who described her as half Robin Hood, half Al Capone. So she basically was the most powerful underworld figure in Washington in the 1940s. She ran rackets. She was a madam, so she ran. Pro she had a prostitution ring. She had a nightclub. She bootleg, bootleg liquor uh, distributor. But of like a very respected leader in the police. She had relations with the police, and they would help each other out. Often, as oftentimes used to happen, the relationships between organized crime and and the police. And which was remind me what she said about the police department. You know, I used to I, own those I people. I used to own those people, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they asked her once, she said, does crime pay? Oh, yes, it pays a hell of a lot. <laughs> and she was in and out of jail, right? She was in and out of jail. Like the club manager. She too, had a club, a nightclub. Club manager was like... Club manager, the most hot, like the most happening place in the city. She's an amazing character and was a lesbian as well. And when you add that to all the other sorts of you know, pressures she was under, it's pretty incredible. And it was pretty widely known. I mean, you didn't see it. It wasn't openly written about at the time, but it was it was widely known. She dies penniless in 1990, I believe. And uh, this happens, you know, this is one of the yeah. themes too, that, that the people whose lives are ruined, some come back in an incredible yeah. way. Like uh, the name is escaping me. LBJ's or yeah, uh, Bob Waldron? Yes, or Bob Waldron. Becomes an interior decorator. Becomes a very successful interior decorator and and then he was at the center of Washington's social world. Yeah. Uh, one day he's in the White Next day he's banned from the White House grounds. He's a non-person. This was if this was cancel culture. <laughs> Once you called someone a gay, he was mm. finished for his whole. One guy, one interrogation that you, he tells the story of, in a, a, a dude who was working for the federal government comes in for his interrogation from the CSC. And at the end of it, one of the more sadistic officers said, well, just let you know, you're finished. The guy gets up, walks out, and shoots himself in the head on the corner of the street. And the number of suicides that went on in the 50s, or the number of people who drank themselves to death, or who were just completely canceled in, in, in a way that properly means the ostracism, the non-personhood, mm. the shame, uh, the stigma, uh, Ten, uh, ten, somewhere. 10,000 probably. Yeah. yeah. That's the estimate. Go ahead. The question is, what is Gay Washington like today? Well, I can't speak to the social scene so much just because I'm sort of an antisocial. No, I'm not an antisocial person. Both but, completely um, misanthropic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, you know, if you look at someone like Pete Buttigieg, if I'm, we're talking about sort of the power dynamic, I think that's an incredible thing to witness, you know, to go from the 1950s where homosexuality was a cause for pro being prohibited from working the government to now where, you know, I think his being gay was probably an asset to his political career. Certainly in terms of his financial contributions, he got a lot of money from gay men around the country who were thrilled to see someone that capable and poised running for office. And most of the criticism of Pete Buttigieg in terms of his sexual orientation was concerned came from the queer left. 
than it did from the kind of rabid reactionary right. I mean, there were actually people disrupting his ev- queers against Pete. There was actually an organization called Queers Against Pete, and they would disrupt his, which, you know, there was sort of a similar analog, I think, with Obama, and there were like kind of black nationalist types who considered him, you know, whenever, an Uncle, an Uncle Tom or whatever, well, I'm not going to say it, but, they, but yeah, I, so I just think, whenever you think of him or his politics, I think that's an incredible, and I don't, and I don't think homosexuality is really in any way, maybe in some very conservative places in Washington, certain Senate offices or organizations. Yes, it is not okay to be gay, but across the rest of the city, of its of the institutions, the intelligence community, and politics, journalism, it's what's a- interesting about it. Just uh, being a gay person, gay gay man in Washington is is there is a, a social world that is independent of any single party yeah. or government or any single profession. In other words, your gayness connects you to a whole variety of people already. It, so, and some of the socializing that goes on, I mean, I think uh, one of the things I think that gay men actually do is that they're often the ones in staffs that hammer out deals that actually are able to talk to the other side because mm-hmm. they're on every side. And there's a certain kind of social lubricant that gay men uh, have. And let's, let's be honest, they're vastly overrepresented on yes. the Hill, but the democracy of gay life. What's interesting, that feature of homosexuality in the book repeatedly comes up as something that really terrifies straight people. And they recognize it very early on that this homosexuality, it's unlike any other trait. It transcends every division of race, class, ideology, uh, age, nationality. There's no other aspect of the human character that that can be said of. And this makes it very threatening to people, right? Because you never know like that black guy, particularly on the racial issue, Right. This notion that, oh, those, you know, uh, those homosexuals, they transcend the color barrier. Right. And Sumner Wells, that he was propositioning African-American Pullman porters. And so this becomes very threatening to people. This aspect of homosexuality, which is really one of the most wonderful aspects of being gay, is that you can travel anywhere in the world and you can find a community. You can go into a gay bar and you can you might not speak the same language as those people, but there is a language that you will be able to speak. Right. And that's. As Gore Vidal said, walking behind John F. Kennedy once, look at that ass. That is, right? That's in your, Yes, that's, that's in, in the, the book. book. I didn't that's make that up. Yeah. Uh, because we're so directed to physical beauty that it, it doesn't matter, class, race, whatever, that, that that dynamic is actually very democratic. It gets through all sorts of class and cultural and geographic. I mean... And it's and it terrifies people during this it, era. During this era, it terrifies people. I mean, I learned just about America from coming across so many people from different ways of life, backgrounds. Washington, especially, because unlike some other big cities, because people come there to represent both parties, it has inherently for a big major city many more. Certainly, in the gay world, Republicans yeah. and other and and conservatives gay, and gay, other, other than gay any other place. gay city. So yeah. you actually do get a sense of gay people from everywhere. Right. And and I think that's that that's why in a way that New York has it influenced culturally. But in fact, when you look yes. at the political achievements, they right. were kind of Washington achievements when when it, it was the NIH that t- that TAG sort of finally dealt with and got it, it, it's uh and it's just incredible to me that so much of history has been written without understanding that which is why I 
I really do think I've waited my whole life for this book to tell the story of the city I've lived in and grown to love and also tell the story of the power of gay men. The reason, I think, the reason why this happened so quickly is because we already had so much power or what we didn't have was self-esteem. Once we had the self-esteem, we were everywhere already. We could talk to, we could immediately communicate to our peers that we deserve to be treated equally. And suddenly it's gone. The families in front. So that was always, whereas cultural subversiveness or art or, or, or street demos and all, mm. all are good and have their place. You know, they're an important part of the mix, but they don't get things done. And, and I think the history has been told primarily in the gay world for, uh, from the people that go in those places that have never really fully understood Washington. They know New York, they know San Francisco, they know LA, but they don't, and they're kind of weirded out by it. And they also have a feeling about gay people who are not lefties. There's something weird, or, and they, they want to read a book so these people are condemned. Right. You, yeah. And you don't condemn. You don't condemn the people working. You, you don't condemn the people working for Nixon or for, or for Reagan or for... You actually, like a historian should, I think, is you just give us all the evidence... And sometimes it's really damning. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible not to look at the life of Roy Cohn and not shudder. But at the same time, you see the brilliance of this guy, the incredible skills he had, the extraordinary brain he has, and how damaged he was. If there's, if there's a villain in the book, it's the closet. Yeah. It's not any one person. It's the closet. Because even someone like Roy Cohn, as terrible as he was, he was a victim of the closet. Right? Yeah. And it says that says that on his plaque, on his his panel on the AIDS quilt. Yeah, bully, coward, victim. He was a victim too. He was, and a P towner. Yeah, P town. The P town. What's the uh, the homos took? He Jack- lived next to Norman Mailer, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. lived just down on Commercial Street, <laughs> not far down from Norman Mailer. And he would, sh- and you said the closet, but then he would show up at the boat slip right. with a whole bunch of beautiful young men. Yeah, it was not. It, it, it was a, you know, it was a glass a, closet. It was a world. It was a world. And creating that world within a world is so fascinating in retrospect. And I don't know, it made me want to think more about what gay people were doing in the 14th century. Mm. <laughs> 15th. I mean, there is so little we have to go on in the public record. But I, it was an eye opener for me because you just realized this, we were always there. We're there when you least expect expect us to be. And sometimes I've had an incredibly important role in human history. The book is really fun. It's funny. I laughed out loud at several points, but you have to be kind of super gay to laugh out loud at several points. And or medium gay. Medium, medium gay. You can laugh too. No, it's very accessible. It's very accessible. There's no code. There's no endless social constructionism. There's no all that stuff. It's it's like it's written like a proper book. Not an academic book, but a classic history that we needed desperately. And I look forward to the update. And also maybe it appearing in movies or miniseries. And, we hope. We hope. Uh, yes, sir. What's, uh, uh, what's your next project? I have lots of ideas and haven't settled on anything yet. So, yeah, thank you. I'll be excited to figure it out. So, <laughs> when I figure it out. <laughs> Tell me, actually, maybe last question. Yeah. The origin of writing the book. Yeah. Tell that story. So I think we'll, we'll end with this. I've always been interested in the Cold War, just all aspects of the Cold War, from 
you know, nuclear weapons strategy to the Cold War in the Third World to espionage fiction. I worked for Radio Free Europe when I was younger, which is one of the great legacy Cold War institutions. I lived in Berlin, which is the center, which was obviously the focal point of, of the Cold War. And at Yale, I studied under John Lewis Gaddis, who's the dean of Cold War historians, and he wrote a biography. He wrote the authorized biography of George Kennan, the great Cold War strategist. And he was teaching a course on the art of writing biography. And we all had to, the final project was we had to write a biography of anyone living or dead whose papers were at the Yale archives. And I chose Larry Kramer, who was a f very famous Yale graduate and had just donated his papers to Yale. And I got to know Larry and used his papers and interviewed him. And he was so adamant about gay history and gay people in history. His brother had endowed a Larry Kramer initiative in lesbian and gay studies at Yale for this explicit purpose. It was unfortunately sort of perverted into a queer theory program and has a whole, that's a whole nother story, but. No, it's actually Larry. fascinating. Tell, <laughs> tell me how you, oh, God. how you met Larry. Well, I really met Larry. So as I was doing this project, before I actually called him up, the Yale, the Larry Kramer initiative at Yale decided to sponsor a two day conference called Queering Michael Jackson. Now, this is in 2005, and it is right in the midst of his trial for pedophilia charges, right? So this is what the Larry Cray, his name is on this program. And I wrote, a, I was a columnist at the Yale Daily News, and I wrote a column. I'm saying this is such an absolute, this is an outrage, and why would a, a program that gay people are involved in be wanting to associate ourselves with a man credibly accused of pedophilia? Larry was outraged. He kind of got in touch with me. So we, we sort of form, formed a bond. And he and I are very different in many ways, politically, temperamentally, but... Not different temperamentally. <laughs> anyway, she <laughs> <Sorry>. was... <laughs> That's a bit of a giveaway. He was so adamant about, you know, gay people have been erased from history. We've always been there and we need to discover it. And I moved to Washington to work at the New Republic magazine. I kept in touch with Larry and I'd go up and visit him. And he'd be just, you know, was this person gay? Is that person gay? What's going on? And he was sort of like a how... Like, he thought everyone was gay. You know, yeah. George Washington was gay. Abraham Lincoln was gay. Yeah, everyone was gay. Everyone was gay. Abraham Lincoln, well, anyway. Maybe Abraham Lincoln was, but he thought everyone was gay. You know those gays that think everyone is gay, right? Yeah. It's really tedious. Right. And so I just think having that interest in Cold War history and living in Washington and recognizing this is a very gay city, why is that? And having Larry kind of breathing down my neck, <laughs> this all sort of... I sort of realized when you're, when you're, when you're a journalist, you, you should, if you're a good journalist, you want to you do something new. You want to say something new. You want to bring new facts to bear. And I just realized all these things that I've been interested in. You know, the His Chambers case is a perfect example. This fascinating trial of the century and books have been written about it. And it was, it was so influential in American politics. And there's this whole gay aspect to it that no one had really, it's been written about, but no one had really delved into it. McCarthyism. There's a whole gay part to McCarthyism. Reagan. The Reagans are the. There's just the Reagans are gay. Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan are just really. There's something gay about them. There's this gay aura of, of surrounding them, and no one had put this together into a book. And I, I, I realized this is this is a great topic for a book to tie all this together into one overarching narrative. I think would be a great book. So that's why I did it. We're all. I think. Grateful for it. Thank and uh, Mazel Tov. Thank you. And thanks so for coming. Thank you.